thought I'd click that. Thank you. Well, we're, do we're doing a series on the uh, eight I am sayings in John. And my hope is to help people realize that in, in your heart, you've probably always known it's about love. And there are stories in the Bible that don't make any sense, uh, if taken literally, that this is poetry and it's something that can really illumine life. But it can also make us intolerant and superstitious if we don't realize it, it's, it's poetry. So we're looking at all eight of the I am sayings in John. I am is the divine name that was given at the burning bush. And that was in Hebrew, but in Greek that got translated as I am <coughs> in a very special form. It used the uh, word I as the subject of a sentence and the word I or me as the predicate of a sentence, which you'd never need in the same sentence. They put those two together and that represented sort of the sacred name, the divine name. So when Jesus is saying, I'm the door, I'm the path, um, it's really important to realize this is poetry, particularly because like today, uh, when we talk about the resurrection, traditional views of the resurrection don't really make sense with the modern uh, world framework, uh, a scientific framework. Not that religion doesn't need to go beyond science, but it shouldn't violate what we know about life and our, our personal experience. That idea that John was trying to claim that cadavers were getting up and that nobody noticed that um, in Acts where you have, um, you know, after crucifixion, these dead bodies get up from the grave and stuff. It, I think that would have been much more persuasive to people. I doubt that anybody would have really doubted if that were true. And what's interesting is the reason we're doing this series is that we'd only take like two or three of the I am sayings literally. Nobody in the world sees Jesus say, I am the bread of life and thinks, okay, well, he's, he's made out of flour and water and yeast. I mean, nobody takes that literally. When Jesus says, I'm the gate, uh, nobody in the world that I've ever met anyway believes there's a hinge um, that, you know, this door opens and closes. And when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, I've never, I never met anybody that thought that he really glowed in the dark. Uh, but when it comes to saying, I'm the only one, the only begotten one, or in this passage where it talks about the resurrection, I'm inviting you to really think about whether John is wanting you to believe that a dead body got up, literally, that he's telling a story. Because in the ancient world, these Jewish wisdom teachers would tell these fantastical stories to illustrate uh, these deep magisterial truths. And when somebody flew through the air or they walked on water or they rose somebody from the dead, that told you it's a parable. Now, the other gospels have Jesus teaching parables, but John doesn't put the parables in. I believe the stories that he's telling are to be understood as, as parables, not as things that are untrue, but as deep, profound revelations of how life works. Most of us probably listening to this um, message <clears throat> have come to believe in evolution. 
if you believe in an evolving um, nature, then the idea of somebody rising from the dead in a permanent form is a little bit disturbing. Uh, think of it, you know, what always occurs to me is if, if somebody had been raised from the dead who is Neanderthal and was stuck at that level, that'd be a very tragic eternity for that person. In fact, at any level that you froze life and made it still and it didn't continue to grow, um, life is change. Life is growth. And so when you have a mythology that tells you that yourself, your separate self can be made permanent and eternal, I think that's incredibly disorienting. And I don't think that's what um, John was trying to say here. When we think about these images, like of, of ghosts and angels and this kind of thing, they can be very moving if we take them symbolically. Of there's there's some you know we have some kind of a contact, some kind of interrelation that's going on. But have you ever wondered why ghosts have clothes? If ghosts are the souls of people that have come up from the from the dead, why do they have clothes? I mean, how did the clothes get to be immortal too? In heaven, angels, uh, at least theoretically, they wouldn't need clothes, but we always picture them as having clothes. In the United States, like they all were dyed blonde. I mean, it's like we, we have these stereotypes of religion that then shut us off from what the sacred looks like in our ordinary everyday life. I think John is trying to give us something that works um, everywhere for everybody all the time. So um, I think the I am sayings are kind of parables of the source of life, how we get in touch with that, how we get in contact with it. And the I am sayings are different aspects of this sacred something that gives us life and birth. I think Thomas is a hint in the story. Uh, Thomas means twin, and John actually reminds us of that. <coughs> the word for doubt in Greek meant to be double-minded. I mean, literally, that's one of the words for doubting. And you see John playing out that role, getting stuck in his thoughts about life. And sometimes you have to choose between thinking about life and actually living it. In times of trauma, in times of loss, when we've lost somebody we love very much, we can get very attracted to these kind of poetic images that make us feel good at first, but they can keep us from experiencing our connectedness because really life has changed, but it's also interwoven. It's ecological. Everything is interwoven. So part of what these symbols are trying to say is we're never really separate from each other, not when we're alive, not when we're dead, that we're all expressions of something deeper and more profound. But we're not these separate beings that have to be lifted up. So I think in a sense that what, what John is saying is what we need, what the resurrection symbolizes, is not a change in the laws of nature, but a change in perspective. In this series, we're using pictures by Van Gogh, paintings by Van Gogh. And uh, David, if you would give the, the, the picture of the cemetery. Um, I'm trying to see the name of it. It's um, 
this is like a tower that's in a cemetery and it gives the name of the town. Um, but this is, you see very bleak. There's snow over everything. Um, graves. This is what life can look like sometimes. And I think that's the picture externally that John is painting for us. David, if you'd show us the other painting, please. Then on the other side of the tower, you see this the same building, same tower there that's off in the distance. And the snow is melting at this point. And you see sprigs of new life coming up. I don't know what Van Gogh thought of the resurrection, but I know that he felt that life was something that's sacred. And whereas the idea of God didn't always work for him, that experience of life as this, uh, you know, primary kind of mystical um, force was very, very uh, uh, important for his life and his work. Thank you, David. So I believe that when we look at scripture, what we're seeing are <coughs> what in the East would be called enlightenment stories, which is why Thomas is lifted up and he actually reminds you that he's the, that that's the meaning of the word. The word Lazarus means God helps. And it helps you understand when all of a sudden out of nowhere, Jesus says, well, uh, it's light for 12 hours a day. And people stumble if they don't have light within them. Now, that doesn't make sense if this is all about a cadaver. At least it doesn't make sense to me. But if he's talking about looking at life a new way, not a change in the laws of nature, but a change in perspective, like looking at that tower from two different angles, um, I think that we have something that's much more helpful than a magic trick that was done 2,000 years ago. I mean, it's a great trick, no question about it, if it happened, but that doesn't have as much meaning right now for your life as if you realize there was a truth being illustrated in that story that's just as true right now in the moment that you live, even if it looks like the dead of winter, that there, there is a life that is there for you, and particularly the life of the love that you think you've lost, that there's, there is a kind of presence that we don't lose uh, in life. Martin Luther once said, our God has written the promise of resurrection, not in books alone, but in every leaf in springtime. And to me, it's much more important to be able to see this symbol of the resurrection in leaves and plants and lives and people than in stories from 2000 years ago. I ran across Years and years ago, when I first got to college, these I am sayings uh, in Hinduism. And when Krishna said these things, or when the Upanishads said the I am sayings, it was a wise person who is speaking as life itself. So if there is this connection, then Jesus isn't to be taken literally. He's trying to lead us deeper within ourselves. This is from the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna says, I am the taste of pure water and the radiance of the sun and moon. I'm the sacred word and the sound heard in air and the courage of human beings. I'm the sweet fragrance of the earth and the radiance of fire. I am the life in every creature 
and the striving of the spiritual aspirant. The whole genius of the I am sayings, I think, is that they're moving us from a noun-centered understanding to an adverb thing. So in life, we don't need actual angels and devils and this kind of thing all the time. Instead, life itself is speaking to us. And the symbol of angels personifies that. I don't know. There may be angels. I don't know. I don't know. But I know that life speaks to us. I know that there's a kind of wisdom that interweaves throughout the universe and that, that the wisdom within us responds to that. So I think Thomas is a reminder and a hint that the I am, when Jesus says, I am the way, I am the resurrection, that it's saying, this isn't just something that you think about. This is something that you, you live, you realize it. The second hint, I think, uh, John is giving us is Martha. Martha's kind of the control freak in the story. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, she's very, wants things done precisely in this kind of thing. And, and again, these are different parts of ourselves. There's a part of us that wants to turn everything into thought. There's another part that we want to control everything. And Martha is going to have to let go. When Jesus says that Lazarus will be raised from the dead, uh, she gets theological. And she says, I know he's going to be raised on the day of the, the dead. Now, that's, that's what I was taught in Sunday school, right? That someday all the dead will rise. There'll be a, the resurrection will be on this last day. And all of a sudden, the, the dead will rise up again. And, and John is saying, that's not what I'm talking about, right? This is what Martha thinks he means. But when he says, I am the resurrection, I think he's saying, um, this is the, the heart of life and the heart of living. This isn't something you control. It's something that calls you from within you. Um, the traditional understanding of the resurrection, where the ego becomes permanent for all eternity, um, is very problematic with the teachings of Jesus, as well as science. Jesus was the one who said, if you seek to save your soul, you'll lose it. Or if you seek to save your life, you lose it. And think how true that is. When we try to make life permanent, when we want to nail down everything and make everything clear and everything that we can control, we lose what is most vital about life. I think what John is saying here in this story, in this parable, is we don't have to die to experience the resurrection. That we are all parts of this churning life. And we love each other, and we would love it if each of us could be permanent. But we all have a calling. We have a destiny. We're becoming something else. And love has to go deeper so that it recognizes that. That we can't keep people permanently the same so they'll always be there um, for us to love in the old way. It's like loving an acorn and not wanting to become an oak tree. We have a destiny, and it's written in us. There's an unfolding that's taking place in the whole universe. And so what's hurting us and wounding us is not life, but instead it's trying to make life permanent, trying to make it something we control instead of this wild frenzies river that, that runs through everything. If we can love that river through the expressions, through the wonderful people we meet, the wonderful animals, the wonderful experiences that we have, but to love them as a part of the stream, 
knowing that we're all becoming something else, then there's much less, I think, despair and, and sadness in our hearts. The last hint John is going to give us is Mary. And he, he brings up the point that she's the one that broke the jar, expensive jar of perfume, and put it on Jesus' feet. <coughs> For many people looking on, this was a devastating moment. Um, I looked up this, this type of perfume, and supposedly it only occurs in the Himalayas. So this must have been incredibly expensive. She broke the jar and washed. Jesus' feet, and then wipes his feet, dries them with her hair. It takes a love that extravagant to get us through the losses of life. We could all come to think that if we could just go back to the past and bring something back or someone back, then we would be happy. And that's, you know, we wouldn't be human beings if we didn't think that way. But what we love in each other is not the form. We love that vital uh, something, that vital spirit that's being expressed through the form that we see. It's like there's an energy coming through the light bulb. And even when the light bulb breaks, that energy is still there. It's just not manifest in the same way. So I think that Mary, um, remember, in the, the, the tomb, Jesus says, don't hold on to me. Uh, I've not yet ascended. I'm not finished yet. I think when John has Jesus say, I am the resurrection. For Mary, that means something different. For Remember, for Thomas, it meant get out of your ideas. Um, for, for Martha, it meant let, let go of some of your desire to control everything. But for Mary, who's this, you know, incredibly intimate lover, and you wonder, um, I mean, I don't know physically or not, but when, when uh, John talks about the disciple Jesus loved, um, you know, she's, she's a lot more appealing than Thomas or Lazarus. So there, there are theories uh, about that. But her huge heart has to grieve. Think as parents how you grieved every stage along the way for the child that you loved. And there was an excitement when the, the child stopped being a baby, but there was also a grieving that took place, a loss that took place. When the child stayed at home and needed your help for everything, um, there was a kind of grieving as that was outgrown. Um, Life hurts. Love hurts. And so in this story, it doesn't make any sense for Jesus to weep. Remember the, the shortest verse in scripture, Jesus wept. That's, that's in this passage. That doesn't make any sense if he's physically going to resurrect the person. But if this is a story about all of us, and if it's a story about life as we live it, then it's saying grief is a part of the resurrection too. Being sad, being lost, losing hope from time to time is a part of this miraculous change of life. And that we should feel no shame with that. Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, who we lost not long ago, 
um, <coughs> wrote that everything is impermanent, that everything is interwoven, and this was his idea of interbeing. So he has a, in his journal, he writes about when his, his mom died, and he said, the day my, mom, my mother died, I wrote in my journal, a serious misfortune of my life has arrived. I suffered for more than one year after the passing away of my mother. Then he says that one night he had this beautiful dream she, where she was there. She was in her youth and they had this wonderful time together. Then he wakes up from the dream, um, very lonely, goes for a walk. And this is, this is what he writes. Remember, he's a Zen Buddhist priest. He believes that everything is interwoven and we're not really separate from anything. Walking slowly in the moonlight through the rows of tea plants, I noticed my mother was still with me. She was the moonlight caressing me as she had done so often. Very tender, very sweet, wonderful. Each time my feet touched the earth, I knew my mother was there with me. I knew this body was not mine, but a living continuation of my mother and my father and my grandparents and my great grandparents. Of all my ancestors, those feet that I saw as my feet, in quotes, were actually our feet. Together, my mother and I were leaving footprints in the damp soil. From that moment on, the idea that I had lost my mother no longer existed. All I had to do was look at the palm of my hand, feel the breeze on my face, or the earth under my feet, to remember that my mother is always with me, available at any time. Again, as a Buddhist, he believes that nothing is permanent, so he's not being superstitious here and saying the people we love come back in the same form. But he said we're never really separate, that life is impermanence. But because we are interwoven and because we aren't really separate from each other, um, that great heartbreaking sense of separation is an illusion from his perspective. And so I think Mary's a symbol of a love that's so great that it throws itself into life. Uh, another great Zen Buddhist um, thinker put it this way. This is Suzuki. In order not to leave any traces when you do something, you should do it with your whole body and mind. You should be concentrated on what you do. You should do it completely like a good bonfire. You should not be a smoky fire. You should burn yourself completely. This is the goal of our practice. That is what Dogen meant when he said, ashes do not come back to firewood. Ash is ash. Ash should be completely ash. The firewood should be firewood. When this kind of activity takes place, one activity covers everything. Now, this is a mystical understanding. And by mystical, I mean it believes everything is interwoven. It, it believes that we're not really fully separate from each other. And I think that's why one way of understanding our passage today, one way of understanding why there are eight I am sayings, because you can't put it into a framework. You can't nail it down. Thomas is a reminder 
that we experience this life that does not die, not by believing in it, certainly not by believing in religion, but by living out of it. Martha is a, a reminder that a lot of our misery comes from trying to control life. And then we are invited to let go and, and to dance to this cosmic hymn that's taking place. And Mary is the reminder that love is the way through this fire, through this pain. Um, that love is the only thing strong enough to let go of the past, to not try to, to be happy by going back in time, but to spend this moment um, seeing the beloved everywhere. Lazarus died. We are told that Jesus rose him from the dead, but then he died again, right? I mean, he's not still around someplace. So a magic trick is not what we're really looking for. Even if Jesus had physically raised Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus had to die again because our form is not what's permanent. It's not even what's most essential within us. It's not even what's most lovable within us. What's most level within us is the life within us. What happened 2,000 years ago is not that important. But giving ourselves fully to life here and now is a gift that could change everything. So these are my musings, my thoughts on today's passage. We will take 60 seconds now for you to think how you would understand these words.